0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. In 1954,
1: I was a fairly normal 14-year-old enjoying sports, unhealthy food, and loud music. But even then, I realized that there were two ways in which I was different from the other guys. I was attracted to the idea of serving in government, and I was attracted to the other guys. I also realized that these two attractions would not mix well. At the time, public officials were highly regarded. The president, Dwight Eisenhower, was one of America's most admired and respected military heroes. I was a homosexual, an involuntary member of one of America's most despised groups. I knew that achieving success in an area where popularity was required would be impossible, given the unpopularity of my sexual orientation. If this were fiction, a spoiler alert would now be appropriate, because the story ends with a dramatic turnabout. When I retired from Congress in January 2013, the divergent reputations of elected officials and homosexuality persisted, but with one major difference. The order was reversed. Legal protections for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people were more popular than elected officials as a class. Congress was held in particularly low esteem. While I did not do any polling on the subject myself, I was told that my marriage to my husband, Jim Reddy, scored better than my service in the House.
0: Barney Frank represented the 4th Congressional District of Massachusetts for more than three decades and chaired the House Financial Services Committee from 2007 to 2011. He's the first member of Congress to enter a same-sex marriage while serving in office. He's a regular commentator on MSNBC. His first book was Speaking Frankly, What's Wrong with the Democrats and How to Fix It. His new book is Frank, A Life in Politics from the Great Society to Same-Sex Marriage. Thank you for joining me. Oh, I appreciate the
1: opportunity. Thank you. This book
0: starts with a a very intelligent and wise 14-year-old boy. It's something of a Bildungsroman uh, nonfiction political story. You also tell us a lot about the inner workings of politics, but I want to talk a little bit about the prequel, about how that 14-year-old boy came to be. And I was thinking that the timing of your youth was such that you grew up during the time when essentially the middle class as we know it today and as we think of it today was created from
1: whole cloth yes and uh, importantly to note with significant public policies that help because that's one of the issues that I that I, that I, I talk about this understanding of the role of collective action in creating and sustaining a middle class uh, people have, have forgotten that I uh, was born in 1940, so my uh, early years are through World War II. Uh, my father was a high school dropout who was a very talented businessman. He had a great entrepreneurial set of skills. Um, and uh, my parents were liberal and instant politics, never actively participating themselves. So we I grew up in households where politics was always being discussed. Um, they said we were, we were secular, Jew, secular Jews. Uh, the New York Post back then was a, uh, a liberal newspaper, quite the opposite of what it is today, and it was as said, close to a Bible as, as we had. I have an older sister, Ann Lewis, who went on to play a major role in the Clinton administration. She's very close to Hillary Clinton, and uh, she, she was interested in politics early on. So I uh, grew up in that household, and there was one particular element that had an impact My father was what we would now call an early adopter. That is, he had a great interest in uh, uh, technology. And in 1940, he bought a television set. Some people don't know there was. A lot of people don't know there was television then. There wasn't much. My mother told me there was NBC, and they would send out a uh, a postcard once a week to tell you what programs were going to be on. So I remember watching television. And I remember, um, among my earliest memories, when I was 10 years old, was watching a uh, very riveting set of hearings about organized crime run by a senator named Estes Kefauver. And uh, those hearings were essentially reproduced in The Godfather. There's a uh, scene, I think, Godfather Two, where a uh, mafia boss for Kansas testimony. I mean, that, that, that happened in real life with, uh, with that drama, not the recantation. And so I just found myself interested. And I also realized that I, was, I had verbal skills. Um, I, I'd never had mechanical skills. I would have flunked shop if the teacher just didn't make me promise not to touch anything in return for passing me. Um, but uh, I have no great mi- musical talents, but I have good verbal skills. And here I am watching these people on television, and I realize this is what I'm good at. And then uh, I start to realize there were real values involved here, in particular in 1954, I'm 14, and a 14-year-old black kid in from Chicago, was brutally murdered in Mississippi. His name was Emmett Till. And I was so outraged at the fact that he was murdered, and the government of Mississippi seemed to be protecting him, and the federal government wasn't doing anything about it, that I kind of merged the two. I thought, gee, I'd like to be part of changing that, and here's a way I could do it.
0: You know, one of the things I think that's really interesting about this book was for me that As much as it's about your life and traces this great arc of American history, this is a great American history book, make no mistake about it, um, you really do some interesting explanations as to what government is and what politics is. Those are two words that are bandied about early and often in almost any conversation anybody ever has. But I think few people understand them with the detail
1: that you understand. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. I really felt uh, it's ironic. They're kind of taken for granted as negatives. And uh, that's why I started early on. because as I say in the book, I've learned if you're going to uh, try to change people's minds, particularly on a subject where they may feel strongly uh, You've got to lead with your best arguments, even to open up their mind to further discussion. So that's why, early in the book, I talk about an example of government and of government regulation over the objection of the regulated industries, that everybody's got to think was a good thing. But again, we, we tend to take our victories for granted. In uh, 1965, poor children in particular were suffering brain damage from the ingestion of lead. There was lead in the paint that was on the walls of the houses. And there was lead in the gasoline, and uh, they were inhaling these fumes. And so Congress stepped in, with Richard Nixon, among others, uh, agreeing, and passed two laws: one mandating that paint be removed from uh, that lead be removed from paint, and two that lead be removed from gasoline. Now those were acts of Congress telling private industry how to run their businesses. In both cases, the affected industries predicted this would be an economic disaster. You are imposing enormous costs on us. We cannot do without lead. But fortunately, the public officials didn't listen. As a result, 20 years later, the incidence of lead-caused brain damage in children had dropped by over 90%. Now, what could be a better triumph for government than to protect innocent children from suffering brain damage uh, over which they had no control? And uh, that's what government did. And so that's why I said at the very beginning, and I wanted to make that point and then return again to um, this this very important point that, yes, we need a private sector, but we need equally as much the ability to come together to do things that the private sector won't do and sometimes to restrain what the private sector would do, and that's called government.
0: I think, too, you make some great observations about the nature of how politics and how, in particular, the very peculiar nature of American Congress, where you have essentially this giant mass of
1: 400 plus people who are all equals.
0: Nobody can tell anybody what to do.
1: Yeah, people don't understand that when they talk about why Congress can't work better. Now, on the whole, Congress has worked surprisingly well. And by the way, we also have this Thing we inherited from the founding fathers, which is we're the only country, really, uh, democracy, where there is a genuine split in the legislative body. The House and the Senate are equal. There are Senates or other chambers in other democracies, but in case of a dispute, the lower house always wins, but not here. We, we, that's sometimes where you get the deadlock. Um, and that's that's a uh, something that's relevant to us. The other thing that people don't fully understand, in most parliaments. You have the uh, the head of the government sits in the parliament. The prime minister is elected by the parliament. We have a presidential system. That's unusual. You don't have this in, in England, say. So our president is not there to give orders to other members, in effect, of the Congress. So as what you just said is the case. There were 435 strong-willed people who are members of the House of Representatives, and some of them more influential than the others, but nobody can order anybody else to do anything. Nobody can fire anybody else. Only the voters can fire you. So if you want to get something done, you've got to figure out how to persuade, cajole, intimidate, um, jolly along enough members to get something done. Now, I have to ask, when you were that 14-year-old kid, was he considered a a class clown? Yes, I was. I did learn, um, as I said, that I had certain verbal skills, and I had the ability to make people laugh, which... um, you know, but occasionally it gets you get into a little trouble with the teachers, uh, so I had to try to control with some. But yeah, and it's a way to gain popularity, and it's a way to uh, uh, it gives you a little extra. People don't like to be laughed at, so if you're having a dispute with someone, and you can make that person look a little ridiculous, that that makes them a little less likely to want to tangle with you.
0: You know, uh, you had a, a an interesting uh, career. Before you got into politics, I'd like you to talk about your college years and and your many attempts at the thesis. The, the thesis. Well, I <laughs> yeah I, I
1: uh, went to college and uh, I was gay and I figured okay I want to have a career in politics I'll just uh, repress it being gay I won't mm-hmm. have a private life um, it wasn't too hard at that point because I'd never had one you know. It's, it's much harder to give something up once you've experienced it, it than to never have it in the first place. And uh, so I just assumed I could somehow avoid having a, uh, a private life. And I had heard and read people say, well, you know, there are some people whose career is so rewarding they don't need a private life. I can tell you in my case that turned out to be absolutely the opposite of the truth. Because to the extent that you get some popularity and some prominence, the disparity between... The approval you get when you're in your job and the bleakness of your private life when you go home alone after the you know, the the ceremonies were over makes it even makes it even worse. So I went to college and I figured, okay, I like politics, I'll go to law school. Again, I figured I would be repressing myself, but when I got to college I figured here's what I'll do. I'll go to work as an advisor for other politicians. I could never, I figured, being gay, get elected myself, and at the time, by the way, and this is a sign that America does make progress. Uh, the fact that I'm Jewish also was a factor. In the 1950s, when I entered college, there was still a lot of anti-Semitism in America. There were jobs that uh, Jews were unlikely to get. There, there were uh, uh, no Jewish CEOs of major corporations. No Jews who uh, who, who who headed up major universities. Um, there were separate Jewish law firms and Jewish hospitals because Jews weren't allowed into the others. That's totally eroded. One great. Improvement in American life is that anti-semitism has sort of collapsed, but I figured okay I'll go and be an aide to others. So I, I go to college and um, I Begin to say gee this is gonna be hard to have no private life And I was I, I very much enjoyed politics and I enjoyed the academic side of it and at one point an instructor of mine Doug Hobbs I remember his name said you know I know you're thinking about law school, but you ought to think about pursuing a PhD You're good at this stuff and that will give you a chance to really work on your uh, political interest, and I thought, yeah, you know, that's not only a good thing because it lets me do politics, but it's a good place to hide and be a gay man. The uh, the university is as close to a kind of a cloister as we have, and universities then, uh, and now, but then even more when the rest of the society was more conventional, universities uh, tolerated eccentricity, tolerated deviation, not necessarily deviance, but deviation from the norm, and also at that point, um, John Kennedy becomes president, and a large number of Harvard professors, I, he gets out in 60, I had taken the year off, so the year of uh, uh, beginning in 61, I was not in, in school, I went back later that year. Um, a large number of Harvard professors go to work for him. They take a leave of absence, Arthur Schlesinger, John Galbraith, uh, uh, George Bundy, and I said, gee, now that's a pretty good career model for me, I'll become a professor and, and teach, and then every so often I'll go to work for some politician and I'll stay there just long enough before people start to wonder why they never see me with a woman and, and, and scuttle back to the safety of the academy. So that was, that was my plan and I entered graduate school, became a junior faculty member, and was, uh, was started working on my PhD. At the same time, I, I kept up my interest and I, was a, I campaigned for a lot of people and did a lot of political activity, including the Mississippi Freedom Summer of 1964. Um, and that, then I came back to Harvard in 1964, took my exams to the PhD, and settled in to, uh, to write a PhD thesis and, as I said, pursue a career where I would be a professor and occasionally, you know, every 10 years I'd take a couple years off and go work for somebody.
0: You know, one of the things I think that interests me is that this book really gives a great look at the history of the country, and you uh, reveal some things about the country that uh, many of us don't think about, which is like the strong, total rejection of gays by, you know, and the many um, conservative aspects of the Kennedy administration. It's
1: shocking. No question. (laughs) You know, uh, uh, that's, it is a sign of how, how total it was. Most people didn't understand it. That was that that just went along the territory. As I said, I look as a as a fourteen year old who had just realized to my great dismay that I was gay. I mean, these people who talk about it being a choice, yeah. Every teenager's dream is to become a member of the most hated minority that exists. I just realized I was gay, and and, and I was terrified. Literally. I don't know what, I mean, I was depressed and terrified. Um, I just managed to 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 repress it, and that uh, and that uh, that helped some. But um, I I, I give this example. In 1954, I was rooting for the uh, people who were deflating Senator Joseph McCarthy. Joe McCarthy was one of the worst demagogues in American history, exploited uh, the legitimate opposition to communism into a uh, means of advancing himself politically, destroying people's careers, uh, using this to smear his opposition. And he was doing it successfully against the Democrats, blaming Uh, Harry Truman and Franklin Roosevelt for losing China to the communists, etc., And a lot of the Republicans thought that was a pretty good thing, that he was beating up the Democrats. And then Eisenhower becomes president, and this guy was so damaged as a person that he couldn't stop. And so now he's attacking the Republicans as viciously as he was attacking attacking the Democrats. So now the Republicans say, well, wait a minute. This is not a good idea. The Democrats had already disliked him. So they came together and uh, had some hearings about his effort to intimidate the army. What had happened was, and ironically, uh, McCarthy's chief aide was a gay man. His name was Roy Cohn. He's the subject of the play Angels in America. He was a vicious, right-wing, deeply closeted, sexually very active gay man who denied that he was gay up until literally the minute he died of AIDS from his own sexual activities. And um, he had a crush on a guy who got drafted. His name was David Shine. And... um, he wanted the Army to give this guy a high position far beyond what he was entitled to. Shine was straight, but he was smart enough not to be too straight with Cohn, at least not to tell him he was not at all interested, so he could benefit from it. And finally, they had a hearing. The Senate had to have a hearing because of McCarthy's efforts to trash the Army. And in the course of this hearing, the lawyer for the Army was a very clever, moderate Republican named Joseph Welsh from Boston, and he was going after Cohn. And at one point, he accused Cohn of leaking a document. Cohn denied it. And uh, Welsh said, Well, Mr. Cohn, if it didn't come from you, how did it show up there? Uh, was it brought by a pixie? So McCarthy at that point tries to jump in to save his young assistant. And he said, Well, Mr. Cohn, uh, uh, Mr. Welsh, uh, you, you say a pixie. Uh, would you define a pixie? And that Welsh was just waiting for this, I guess. And he looked right at Cone and he said, Senator, a pixie is a close relation to a fairy. Well, that was a devastating attack on People didn't talk publicly about what everybody knew, that this was probably because of his homosexuality. And the interesting thing is this. Liberals all of America cheered when he did this. And I included it myself. I mean, the notion that, that I should take umbrage at this, the notion that we could somehow fight against it, we most of us, there were a few exceptions, accepted this. And then you go into the uh, Dwight Eisenhower... That same year promulgates a rule that if you're gay, you can't get a security clearance, that nobody can get a security clearance. The New York Times writes about all this with the headline uh, 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 talking about sex perverts, meaning us. And then John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, first Kennedy's chief of the civil service, says no homosexual should be able to work for America. And Kennedy and Johnson agree with the Congress to tighten up language in American immigration law that says no gay man or lesbian can come to America. They would passed that in 1900. They used kind of roundabout language because they didn't want to say anything so nasty. So they said people with a psychopathic personality, but it was clear by psychopath they meant gay men and lesbians. And then uh, Kennedy and Johnson years later said, well, you know, those liberals on the Supreme Court, Earl Warren and those people, they may not agree that that homosexuals are psychopaths, so let's add the word sexual deviation to keep them out. And it passed Congress overwhelmingly, and Kennedy and Johnson supported it.
0: One of the core themes of this book comes out of your love of incrementalism. And I think that another core theme is that it's a lot easier to go after your opponents and to combat your opponents than it is to combat your friends. And you found yourself in both of those positions many times, Junior, during
1: your career. You're right, and and they come together. In the first place, incrementalism... The choice is not between incrementalism and getting it all at once. The choice is, by definition, between incrementalism and getting nowhere. I mean, people should understand, You're, I always I found myself engaged with serious social ills racism, homophobia, serious economic inequality. Um, by definition, those things have very strong roots in the society. They're not accidents. People didn't just forget not to be nice to black people. Um, <laughs> there, there were deep roots there. And when something is deeply embedded in a society, it's not going to be just fall apart if you blow on it, like the, the big bad wolf or the, uh, at the house of the little pig made of straw. So you have to figure out what's there and how to change it. And change is almost by definition going to be incremental. Now, there are sometimes, and I say, here's the problem with incremental change. And it is, somebody had a great phrase once that I f- remembered. Sometimes you have to choose the lesser evil, but it's important to remember it was an evil. That is, it's, it's, it's imp- it, you have ver- rarely do you have a choice other than to be incremental. You don't want to over-celebrate it. You don't want to give people the idea that because you've got some improvement, that's everything. But neither do you want to say that you got nothing. You need to say, we're making progress, and, and here's how we do it. And my problem with my friends on the left is that there's this interesting dichotomy. People on the right have tended to be more um, uh, celebratory of America they have felt historically it was wrong to even to criticize America. People on the left have been, I think, correctly uh, proud to be Americans, but also more willing to recognize flaws that needed to be improved as a result. So when there is a, uh, a need to make a change in policy, when the right feels they need change, they they are more likely to resort to political activity. People on the left too often say, oh, well, the political system is so flawed, We're not gonna do that, we'll march, we'll demonstrate. And uh, I would illustrate that with the Tea Party and Occupy. I didn't agree with everything about Occupy's general approach, they didn't have a specific platform. I thought some of their economics were a little bit unrealistic. But I was generally in in agreement with the thrust of Occupy. I was very much in disagreement with the Tea Party. Because of that, it troubled me that the Tea Party was so much more effective than Occupy. Um, The Tea Party got their people out to register to vote, and turn out in primaries and vote and call their legislators and lobby them. Uh, Occupy had drum circles. In American politics, drum circles don't, don't beat voter registration. I asked once somebody at Occupy, well, why are there no voter registration tables there? She said, well, that's not what we're into. And, and yeah, I did find many on the left more interested in expressive demonstrations that, that let you uh, express your feelings But unfortunately, are not connected to any mechanism that changes the system.
0: Well, too, you, I think, had a more pragmatic perception as to what was not only what was achievable, but what was worth achieving, and you illustrate this well with an anecdote that has to do with Pete Seeger's a Pete Seeger song.
1: No, you're right. I mean, I, I should. That's a fair point. I disagreed with some on the left. First of all, procedurally, how do you how do you achieve change? Uh, basically, it, it doesn't mean that you think the American system is perfect if you take advantage of how it now exists. But there was also this uh, strain on the left when they were dealing with people who were being treated badly, African-Americans for into this in Mississippi, uh, gay and lesbian people in the movement. There were some people, uh, the goal, I believe, of black people, of gay and lesbian people, has been to be treated just like other Americans. But there's a radical element. I mean radical in the best sense. People who, who, who really are motivated to challenge what they think is a, 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 a outdated society. They are hoping that the very fact that these groups have been excluded will make them agents of change for the whole society. That, that black people won't just be like any other uh, middle class or working class guy drinking beer and watching football games. They'll be more culturally involved, similarly with gay and lesbian people. And... Uh, there was also this sense that the uh, that aesthetically, culturally, America is really uh, below a minimum standard, and that they will get working people to change that. So you had Pete Seeger's song, and look, Seeger was very far left, uh, very critical of the American economic system. He had a right to be. He should not have been persecuted for his beliefs, but people should take those into account. Um, and... Uh, what he had, the song that he sang, somebody else, somebody from Berkeley had written it, they mentioned this to me when I was out there, but he popularized it, it was called Little Boxes, it was about housing, and it was uh, Little Boxes, I'm going to try to sing it, i you get you taken off the air if I did, Little Boxes, Little Boxes, um, talking about the housing that working class Americans were living in, the housing that had been built after World War II, with funds in part from the government, the Veterans uh, Administration, this was the housing. Uh, for, for, for working Americans and allow them to own homes. And the song was Little Boxes, Little Boxes. They're all made out of ticky tacky and they all look just the same. Well, the fact that they all look just the same was how you were able to build so many. If you had had to individually design every house and pay an architect, working people couldn't have been able to afford them. Similarly, uh, they were not made out of stone and granite and uh, antique wood, uh, they were many of them very sturdy. But by his definition, that was ticky-tacky. And once again, you couldn't, have, you couldn't have had the mass production of housing that was so important as a social advance for people if it wasn't far below Pete Seeger's standards. And that, to me, uh, the average American much would have preferred the, the, the mass-produced houses they had than a much smaller number of houses that met Pete Seeger's architectural barrier.
0: Getting all this uh, these points across is great, but I think that to put it in the framework of a story, and the framework of history, which itself is a story, and that's part of the word, um, is really important. And I think that the great power of this book is that you use the single arc of your life to give us a look at the history over the last 50 years. That, that's an, that's no, a great I accomplishment. That.
1: Part of it was serendipitous in the sense that um, my political career begins three years after the gay rights movement. I mean, literally, because there are very few major movements in America. I say very few. None that I can think of. None where a single event, the Stonewall resistance to police brutality and oppression, led by drag queens in, in, in a bar in Manhattan in 1969, there were very few events that set, set off such huge change. And uh, I was working for the mayor of Boston as, as his chief aide and chief liberal, dual job, in 1968, 69, and 70 I know as a fact there was no organized gay or lesbian political activity in Boston Because if there was, it would have related to me And as a gay man at this point Trying to find other gay people I wanted to find it It wasn't there I went to Washington for you And I came back from Washington in 19, in early 1972 There was a full-blown gay movement I, mean, I I marched in the second gay rights parade in Boston's history I filed the first gay rights bill In the history of the Massachusetts legislature was that, So... I I'm agreeing that yeah, my my life and 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 history to a great extent overlap. Not because of some creative thing I did, just because there was this uh, th- this overlap. But it was also true, as I realized it, that my active political years encompassed a great shift in the view of government. And I, I list two two polar things there. Nineteen sixty-one, the signature statement is John Kennedy's: "Ask what you can do for your country." which is very much a collectivist view. It is, you know, don't just be selfish for yourself. Help other people. And, of course, when you talk about what you can do for your country, that implicitly means through government. The next four presidents are pretty unsuccessful. Lyndon Johnson has some great successes, but it ends in failure. He's forced not to run again. Richard Nixon is driven out of office. Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter are both defeated for reelection. Those are four, four presidencies that ended badly for the incumbent. So the next very successful presidency in popular terms from John Kennedy is Ronald Reagan's, and he says the exact opposite. Government is not the answer to our problem. Government is the problem. So I'm, I'm living through the beginning of the gay rights movement, and also my politically active years, starting in the late 60s, are also at the point when America is making this major shift with regard to government. So, yeah, the fact is that I did find myself in the... In, in, in the Playing these roles in the midst of, of, of some major historical changes,
0: you do a great job at documenting uh, the rise of the right in in American po- politics. And I'd like you to talk about that, how it felt to look back and document what you'd experienced as
1: really hard facts on the political ground. Yeah, it's disappointing. As I said, I, you know, I, I had a good news, bad news. Uh, frame. I started out thinking, well, you know, I'd like to be influential in government so I could fight racism and make economic changes. At that point, early on, I wasn't even thinking about fighting homophobia. It was only later that it seemed to me it was even possible. Uh, But I thought, well, you know, being gay, I'll never get to play an influential role in government, so I won't be able to accomplish that. As American prejudice based on sexual orientation drops, I begin to... uh, uh, think, okay, maybe I can be influential in government and have some changes But then government stops being influential in society And that's the, I, 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 I'm watching that It took me a while to catch on to it At first, uh, I was very critical of, of a guy who had been my great friend most of my life And very good to me, Michael Dukakis Because as governor, when I helped him win Although he won that one on his own um, He got too conservative for me and, and I was angry at him, and I still disagree with much of it, but I now realize I was a little bit unrealistic in what I expected him to be able to do. In other words, the society was moving to the right quicker than I realized. And uh, it took me a while to, to realize that. So by the mid 80s, yes, I did have to sit up and say, you know what, um, I, I just, I got the job is no longer for me to be influential in government. I now got to spend time trying to have, help government be influential in society. Well, I think you uh,
0: absolutely achieved many stunning successes. So I'd like you to talk about your work as an incrementalist in a world where everybody modeled themselves on Gandhi and Martin Luther King. And you, uh, as you point out, that I think, and I tend to agree, that it, the work of these men was um, incorrectly interpreted.
1: Oh, yeah, they were much subtler political thinkers. In the first place, Martin Luther King... and and Gandhi before him, relied on mass demonstration as opposed to voting for a very simple reason. The people they were working with couldn't vote. I mean, the the Indians were not allowed to vote within the British Empire. Once you got that, then you did not have the mass demonstrations. Instead, people could vote. And it's even more the case in the South. Yeah, and people do not realize this. I mean, I was in Mississippi in 1964. If you were black in Mississippi, you literally could not vote. They'd shoot you. They'd just, you'd show up to register, and they'd refuse to do it. And in the law at the time, the federal government was helpless to, to do anything about it. And in fact, sure, there were, there were major demonstrations, but the most recent demonstrations that we've remembered 50 years ago, Selma, 1965, that was specifically to get the right to vote. And once blacks in the South got the right to vote, their focus shifted. There would be some marching but it was to mobilize people politically. I was very pleased to see in Ferguson, in, in Missouri, after the uh, controversy over the shooting of, of uh, Michael Brown, uh, at first there was rioting, which I think was a bad idea, from just wrong to destroy people's businesses who didn't shoot anybody, but also counterproductive. And, and finally what they decided was, let's register to vote. We have a black majority in this town, we don't, we don't vote. So they, there are now three members of the city council who are black rather than one. And I think you'll see policies change in, in, in the, in the uh, city of Ferguson. Uh, so yeah, Martin Luther King moved once he got the vote, and he was very careful about his political strategy. And sometimes he would push here, and sometimes he would pull back. He was, he was the, a brilliant incrementalist. That is, he understood what he wanted to do. He understood how hard it would be, and he would pick a specific goal and, uh, and work towards it. You had many battles through your years with the people who
0: weren't incrementalists in the gay rights community. Yeah. And I think that I'd like you to talk about that, having the people whom you were trying to support work against you. Well, I'm
1: glad you asked that question, and I, it allowed me to continue. Uh, let me begin by talking about Martin Luther King. When Martin Luther King was murdered, he was obviously he was a martyr, and people revered him, and they revere him today. But in the years before his murder, he was being sharply criticized by the anti-incrementalists, by the young radicals. Um, The people who started the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, Stokely Carmichael, people like that, Rap Brown, who started Black Power, they were contemptuous of Martin Luther King. They mocked him. There was a great play that was written in a uh, kind of old Southern Negro dialect called Green Pastures. And it's what heaven would be like with... uh, with black people talking in this exaggerated uh, uh, dialect. And um, the central character is God, referred to as the Lord, D-E-L-A-W-D. And in uh, the mid to late 60s, before he was murdered, people from SNCC used to refer to Martin Luther King as the Lord. The Lord has spoken, uh, mocking his timidity, uh, mocking what I think was his... Much better understanding of reality and how to change it similarly with the LGBT movement um, They thought that well look I understand how angry people were and how how they wanted to just lash out and 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 speak about What what needed to be done? Uh, but your anger needs to be channeled and Getting out in a crowd with people who agree with you and calling Your enemies names, even if those names are accurate even if the people you're denouncing should be denounced uh, and occasionally interfering with everybody else, it doesn't help. It doesn't do any good. And I contrast the March on Washington that Martin Luther King had when he made the I, I Have a Dream speech in 1963 and the Gay March in 1993. The 1963 March was very disciplined. John Lewis, who was a great moral leader, the, was merely beaten to death for voting rights, been a congressman for years. John tells people he had to submit like five drafts of his speech to the march on Washington, they kept saying it's too radical, John. You're going to alienate white people. We're here to try to persuade them to be with us. You can't say the people demand. We don't want to look like that. And he gave a very eloquent speech, but it was it was more it was moderated. Exactly the opposite happened in 1993. Gay and lesbian people got up there, and one lesbian comedian talked about how she'd like to have sex with Hillary Clinton. And uh, they, there was some I mentioned these in the book. There were some guys who had been kicked out of the military. We want to show this is unfair. These are soldiers like anybody else. So one of the gay leaders decided to get them to line up like the Rockettes and do a, uh, a kick line. I asked them to stop. They got mad at me, but they did stop. And uh, yeah, I was looking for some discipline. The purpose of political activity is not for you to feel good and demonstrate your, your moral commitment. It's to persuade other people who aren't with you to, to be supportive. And I would have arguments with people about this, and they, they resented it, and they confused Concern for effectiveness with a lack of commitment. And I believe, and people have said to me, well, you're a pragmatist, we're idealists. I find that a very unfortunate uh, opposition of words. Yes, you should be an idealist. You should be motivated by trying to make things better. But the more committed you are to your ideals, the more morally obligated you are to be pragmatic. Because if you have a strong set of ideals and you don't do anything to implement them, they're no good. Pragmatism
0: is... The ultimate idealism yes, it in is. many ways because it actually gets
1: something done. Right. In the absence of, of a commitment to getting things done, idealism is a license to feel good about yourself, but it doesn't feed a hungry child or protect somebody from being beaten or clean up a river or, or house the homeless.
0: You were party to some really uh, contentious moments in gay history. Don't ask, don't tell, and Doma. I'd like you to talk about Your participation in those two
1: things Well, don't ask, don't tell Um, I misread things Um, I was My late colleague, Gary Studs And I both started talking about the need to uh, Get rid of this And I had a very successful moment When I kind of ambushed Dick Cheney When he was Secretary of Defense That was one of your two favorite ambushes Yes, and I asked him At a budget hearing, so he wasn't expecting it Whether the reason that we who were gay Were excluded from the military Was that we were security risks As I say in the book uh, he had a problem there because at the time his press secretary was a gay man His name is Pete Williams, he's since come out, he's a very well known and respected TV this is uh, a, journalist This is a theme, I mean Roy Cohn <laughs> Yeah. no, this is, and uh, and, and, um, by the way, I, I, look, I was closet myself, but I make this distinction There was a period, for the first 15 years when I was elected office, when I was a coward, I wouldn't tell people I was gay But I was never a hypocrite, I never withheld my support for, for uh, pro-gay activity and, and closeted gay men who then voted for any gay stuff. senior, that's contemptible, I had no, no support for that. But I asked Cheney, and he, he couldn't very well say, yes, you guys are security risks, because then the press would ask him why he had a security risk as his press secretary. because everybody knew the guy was gay. So he said, no, that's just an old chestnut. That weakened the case for it. And um, I spoke to Clinton, I was in a small, a small group of members of Congress invited to meet with Clinton running for president. I said, what do you think about doing away with that? He said, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. So during the campaign, Clinton said he was going to abolish the ban. And then, to our surprise, two very prominent figures decided to attack it. One was Colin Powell, very disappointing. You know, one of the analogies we were making was with segregation in the military. And it wasn't right to treat blacks differently, and it's not right to ban gays. Colin Powell specifically said, oh, no, they're very different. Race is a benign condition. And... uh, He lent his support to uh, maintaining the ban on gays in the military and as the highest-ranking African-American ever to serve in the U.S. military. He destroyed our ability to make that analogy. And he was a guy a lot of people liked. Yes, he was very popular. And people said, well, why didn't Clinton just order him to be with him? Well, he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in his last few months. His term was about to expire. His term was going to expire a few months into the Clinton administration. When Powell came out against allowing us to serve in the military, Clinton wasn't even president. He had no power to, order, power to do anything. And then you had Sam Nunn, who was a very respected conservative Democrat, who turns out to be a real homophobe. He had, turns out we found that he fired gay men who worked for him because he said there was security risks. When we had a vote a few years later on uh, legislation to ban discrimination based on employment, he was one of only five Democrats to vote against it. And he also led the fight against it. So what happened was we didn't have the votes. Um, I tried to propose a compromise not the one that was adopted. My compromise was this, okay, when you're on duty, you won't talk about your sexuality, but as soon as you're off duty, if you live off base, if you're going uh, uh, afterwards, you're going out with your friends, you're not, you, you can associate and, and be gay. wasn't perfect. I think it would have been advanced. We couldn't get, Powell wouldn't have go along with that. Powell said he'd go along with that if another member of the Joint Chiefs would join him and none of them would. They were all very bigoted. So instead they did this, don't ask, don't tell, which might have, Been a slight improvement if it had been run well, but they ran it badly. And uh, my disappointment with Clinton was not that he didn't succeed in getting rid of the ban, because I know he tried. He just didn't have the votes. The problem was he had this personality where he he couldn't admit defeat. So even though we had lost, he tried to make it look like we had won more than we had. And that's what I've said. I'm for incrementalism, but that doesn't mean that anything is better than than nothing. And in fact, if you get very little in a way that reaffirms the problem, don't, don't, don't say you accomplished anything. So that we lost out on that one. On the other end, there was some compensation. I talk in the book about every politician understands the principle of compensation. That is, I, Yeah, that's, an int- that's a big point in this book. That's, you've been very good to me. You're a good friend of mine. I want to keep your support. You come to me with your major issue, and I can't deliver. Either I don't agree or I just can't deliver. What any good politician will instinctively do is to say, what else can I do to show him that I support him? How else can I help him? So I went to Clinton after we couldn't get, don't ask, don't, uh, couldn't get the uh, appeal on the ban on gays in the military. and said, here are three things you can do. First of all, you can get rid of that terrible executive order from Dwight Eisenhower. And by the way, Eisenhower's executive order that said if you were gay, you couldn't serve in, in, in government, it was maintained by John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, and Jimmy Carter, not to mention Ford and, and Reagan and, and, and Bush. So Bill Clinton abolished that. That was a very important step saying that, no, there's no more of this policy that gay people can't get a security clearance. Secondly, we have this policy in America that if you're being persecuted in a foreign country because of your religion or your uh, your race, you can come to America and, and get asylum. He added to that list of reasons that would allow you to come to America for protection, being gay or being transgender, which is very important. And he put out a statement, again, contradicting what John Kennedy had said, not only that it was okay for gay people to serve in these civil parts of American government, but that there could not be any discrimination. So that, he did not get enough credit. he gets too much blame for the, don't ask, don't tell, because he did try to stave it off. Although he shouldn't have welcomed it the way he did. And and he doesn't get credit for the things he did later. Because at the end, in 2010, thanks to, and we're in the region and people should understand, that nobody in America, the most important person by far, who has been a wholehearted supporter of LGBT legal equality is Nancy Pelosi because she got to be the speaker and was 100% committed. And I was very proud to be her lieutenant in the end of the 2010 session when uh, she, with my acquiescence, basically held the defense bill hostage, the defense bill for the year, until the Senate agreed to repeal don't ask, don't tell. And that was a tough stance, and uh, uh, it came down to the wire and finally happened on the last day of the session.
0: I think one of the things you make clear is that Um, in order to run a country as you have, it's important to understand the rules. You understand the rules, the parliamentary rules, uh, and also the kind of interpersonal uh, relations that go on. You talked about compensation. That's a really key way that politicians uh, relate to one another. And politics is, at the end, a series of essentially unshaken handshakes, agreements between people.
1: You, and you, you you, made the other point, point. you connect them well. Look, if I'm the head of a corporation, I want to get along with people, but in the end, I can order them to do something. I can fire them. I, we go back to the point that you correctly raised before, that there were 435 members of the House, and nobody can order anybody else to do anything. The is more important than a freshman of the other party, but nobody can fire anybody, and nobody can order anybody to do anything. So it has to be by personal relationships and persuasions. That's why one of the Two books I read that had a real impact on how I operated was Robert Caro and Lyndon Johnson. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was relevant when I became the chairman of the committee, or first when I became the minority leader, in effect, of the committee. And the lesson I got was this. You've got some influence over other people, and it's going to be part of your job to get them to do certain things that won't always be popular for them to do. Do everything you can during the time when you're not asking them to do something to help them. If they want something and you can do it. Think about how you could be helpful to them. In other words, establish a set of relationships so they have a vested interest in being your friend. So that on the occasions when you do ask them to do something that might be difficult, you're not starting from scratch. They have a kind of an inclination to do it. Of course, the major reason they're gonna do it is that they think it's the right thing to do. But but in case they have a political hesitation, the friendship can can overcome that. And yeah, uh, and then the rules. People make fun of parliamentary rules. You have to have rules. You can't have 435 people just milling around. And there has been this tradition where the conservatives have understood the rules better than the liberals. I don't know why. Again, it's, it's almost connected to the emotionalism. There's been a sense among liberals that if you really care strongly, don't don't be disciplined. Just, just say what you think. Say what you feel. Well, yeah, you should say what you feel after you've figured out how to say it in the most effective fashion.
0: Exactly. And I think— uh, that's one of the, the whirlwinds we're reaping, even as we speak with uh, the members of the Tea Party yes. in, in the Republican side. So I'd like you to talk about that a little bit, because you do a nice compare and contrast between uh, the Democratic left during the late 60s and early 70s and the Tea Party today. And there's a it, they're not the same thing. It, one is one is fishing with a fishing pole, the other one
1: is with a steel net. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, look, part of the problem, again, is that people on the left, understandably angry, have uh, voiced their anger in a kind of emotional way. People on the right are more likely to say, you know what, this is my government, I don't like the way it's being run, and they vote, and they participate. I'll give the example I hope people will understand. By far the most effective political lobbying group in America, given its membership and its percentages in the population, is the National Rifle Association. They are very effective. They don't have marches. They don't have demonstrations. They're not even big contributors. Everybody in the NRA registers to vote and lets the members of his or her constituency know that. And if there's a special primary election when only 18% of the people are gonna come out to vote, 100% of the NRA, 88% of the NRA people will come out to vote. And that's what I keep trying to tell And Some people say, well, it's almost as if if I vote, if I, if I lobby my congressman, I'm accepting that this is a legitimate system. The answer is, no, you're not. You're accepting that it exists. And, and nothing says you can't try to change it. But while you're trying to change it, you don't ignore it. I think this is uh,
0: one of the most important aspects of this book is, to that uh, politics operates in reality. Theory and passion and feeling and emotion are all great, but we live in the real world.
1: They're all great if they fuel the right kind of action. Why, well, I, I, I said I have a uh, a rule that uh, I have a, a decision making rule that I used every day Frank's rule. Well this one is uh, I borrowed it from Henny Youngman a uh. great comedian who used to make all these jokes about wives and mothers-in-law and, and he had some sexist kind of jokes about wives and mother-in-law you know, his f- most famous was the shortest joke in history, take my wife please. But um one that he had was really very profound. How's your wife? Compared to what? Compared to what is the question I always had to ask myself. Should I vote for this? Should I try to get this bill adopted? Should I accept this compromise? And the question is always compared to what? Because when you're in the real world, you don't have the luxury of making something out of whole clay brand new. You've got to choose. Now, The thing to do is say, okay, in this current situation, with these constraints, I choose x. Tomorrow, I'm going to try and make sure that the next time I choose, I can get 3x, or x plus, or maybe x minus. Um, But but compared to what is, is the rule. At any given time, you are deciding, and the reality is there, and you have to figure out, given what exists, and the fact that I cannot change that reality in the short term, what's the best outcome. We
0: all know the notion of the apocalypse, the end of the world that comes with all these triumphs and trumpets and the blows up. It's uh, Dr. Strangelo. Uh, I think a less familiar uh, concept is the concept of the pericolypse, which is the end of the world that has come only nobody noticed. That happened back in about 2006, I think. Um, or actually, it happened in 2000 when I, it was the uh, leech. A uh, Leahy bill passed that undid the. So that was graham leach Biley Yeah, finally Yeah, so um, that bill undid pretty much all the protections put well, in place. Well, it
1: was that was part of it. I voted against that because I wanted there to be new protections. But here's the problem: even if that bill had survived, it wouldn't have saved us for this reason. That bill, the bill that it repealed grass steagall was passed in 1933. Mm-hmm. That worked very well until into the 80s. But beginning in 1980, the financial system morphed into something very different. Um, 50 years ago, if you borrowed money, you borrowed it from a particular bank and you had to pay that bank back. So the bank was careful about who they lent it to. By 1995, the bank would lend you money and then it would sell the loan to somebody else. So they didn't care whether you paid it back or not. Plus there was a lot of money in there so that you borrowed money from things that weren't banks, that weren't regulated. And what happened was a whole lot of new things came up, financial derivatives. Credit default swaps, securitized mortgages, and there were no rules. The problem was not so much repealing rules that had existed, because these were new things, but not adopting rules for them in the first place. And there's this conservative myth that all the liberals caused the problem by lending all this, making the banks lend the money to poor people. Beginning in 1994. That does not stand. (laughs) Yeah, on on, on three separate occasions, liberals tried to stop the bad loans because they were hurting poor people as well as the system, and the conservatives said we were interfering with free enterprise. Alan Greenspan, The Wall Street Journal, during the period when we were trying to block these predatory loans, they defended them. Only after the crash, when it was clear what damage had been done, did they suddenly decide retroactively that they'd been opposed to them all along because they wanted to blame the government, and in fact, the problem was we didn't have enough government. And uh, they prevented us, because they were in power, the Republicans in Congress, They prevented us from adopting the rules that would have protected them. Those are the rules that we finally did adopt. I'll give you an example. In 2007, this is all in the book, I became chairman of the committee for the first time. The Democrats took over for the first time since 95. And I was in charge of the committee that passed the bill to stop the bad loans. The Wall Street Journal, people can go look it up. November 7, 2006, you mentioned, November 6, 2007, ran an editorial denouncing me because I was keeping poor people from home ownership and I was hurting minorities. So they they have totally stood history on its head. Well, this is uh, an effective tactic.
0: I mean, the telling the truth is way is absolutely uh, unknown today. We we are operating, as you point out, from two completely different sets of facts. When you started out, it was just NBC. Yeah.
1: No, and the Walter General has just been shocking in this. Uh, Literally, they now blame poor people. Uh, they blame liberals for getting houses to poor people. They, they, they have this editorial. They just, they just pretend it didn't exist. November 6, 2007, saying the subprime loans were great. The other one is Dick Cheney. In his book, which I happen to be reading, I was waiting to be interviewed, and his book was there. I didn't buy it. And he said, uh, in 2003, we tried to reform Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, but Financial Services Committee Chairman Barney Frank killed the bill. But I wasn't chairman of the committee in 2003. The Republicans won power in 2003 and four and five and six. So he just lies and blames, basically says, I was the chairman of the committee that killed the bill the year that it was the Republicans that killed the bill. And in fact, 2007, which was the first year I became chairman, I passed the bill. And I was very upset. But then somebody said, well, you know, that's kind of an interesting status you have. In other words, Dick Cheney was lying about what you were doing in 2003 that puts you in the same class as an Iraqi weapon of mass destruction because he lied about them in 2003, too. Uh, I'd
0: I'd like you to talk about um, crafting the Dodd-Frank bill, what you hoped it would do, what you got out of it, because this has been yet another set, I, I think, you know, I of compromises and the compromises we have to make seem to be getting worse and worse.
1: Oh no no the financial reform bill is, is much better than it's happened recently. Oh. you say worse and worse but it's 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 the biggest advance in in 50 and uh, 60 years from the from the 30s and 40s actually 70 years. First of all we set up the independent financial consumer bureau which has worked very well. Uh, secondly we did make it more expensive and harder to engage in financial manipulation and the best proof of that is GE, formerly General Electric, mm-hmm. they were originally the company that made things, stoves and refrigerators and, and light bulbs, etc. cetera. Um, years ago, under a guy named Jack Welch, they decided to get into the financial manipulation business. And by a few years ago, much of their profit was coming from this financial razzle-dazzle that didn't add a lot to the society. And in fact, they got in over their heads and had to be given a loan then we passed the bill that puts restrictions on what you can do, makes it uh, harder for you to play these games. And General Electric, GE rather, the new name, just announced that they are selling off that business, that they can no longer make money by this kind of financial manipulation because uh, we, the regulations have gotten too tough. So I, I think we uh, we got most of what, of what we wanted. There were a couple of compromises. But another uh, you know, example, AIG was the company that, touched things off when they came to the Federal Reserve and said, we need $170 billion to pay our debts. You gotta pay them off or we're gonna there will be a terrible problem. Well, the Fed stepped in at the time. This is under Bush, by the way, not under the Democrats, because I don't think they had any choice. But we changed the law, that couldn't happen today. Uh, if a company comes to the federal government today and says, I can't pay my debts, they're put out of business. They, debts, some of the debts may get paid, but they're put out of business, and then after the debts are paid by the treasury, Other financial industries or or companies are are tapped to make up that money. You tell a fascinating story about TARP. I think that's one of the most
0: gripping episodes. I remember specifically coming into this station when uh, Lehman Brothers went over, and I had long ago, back in 1987, I had installed the first computer trading systems over at Smith Barney. So I felt somewhat responsible. I remember coming in and telling the DJ... This, my friend, is the beginning of the end. So I'd like to talk about. Well, what we
1: did was look. We had this problem under the, and this is the Bush people told us this. it's another thing we accomplished in the bill. Lehman Brothers goes bankrupt and can't pay any of its debts, and the federal government tried to get the Bush administration tried to get another bank to take them over, but all the American banks had already taken somebody else over. And Barclays Bank in England said, we'll take it over, but the British authorities said, no, you won't. You know, you're not bringing that crap over to, over to here. So Lehman Brothers fails and doesn't pay any of its debts. That causes the system to wind down because all of a sudden everybody's afraid if they lend anybody else money, they won't get repaid. And our system consists of people always lending each other money back and forth. Two days later is when AIG comes in and says, look, we, we can't pay 170 billion, at that point, the Bush administration decided we better pay their debts because they had two choices. They could pay none of the debts or have the government pay all of the debts and both were pretty disastrous. What we did in the bill was to change that. So now if either one of them came in, the federal government would say, okay, you're out of business. We're going to take over what's left and we will pay some of the debts to keep it from getting too much out of hand, but other financial companies will have to uh, pay that off. But then we had this, this problem because the economy was about to wind down And so they did come up with the TARP program, and the TARP program, frankly, was very unpopular, but also very successful. What people don't remember is that we—not only did we get back every penny that was lent to the banks, the federal government made money on that. There was one area uh, in the TARP lending where we didn't get all our money back, but I think most people would agree that it was the right thing to do, and that was the money we got to uh, Chrysler and General Motors. If we hadn't stepped in, if the government hadn't stepped in, Chrysler and General Motors would have gone under. And by the way, Ford wanted us to help them, even though Ford themselves were not at risk, because they said if Chrysler goes under and General Motors goes under, that's also going to be the end of a lot of the activity, industrial activity in America that make parts for the auto industry. The whole supply business would have gone under. It would have been a terrible blow to the economy, which uh, w- was protected. But they, they never quite paid back what they borrowed. But the TARP did— uh, Keep things going for a while. I am convinced that with what we've done in the legislation, that will not happen again. I think one of
0: the curatives of a book like this is to uh, lay those out and tell them in a personal story. And as you were writing this, did you, um, how did you go about constructing this? Did you just start at page one telling the story?
1: Well, this one, I went back. Well, I, I had this debate with my editor because. He wanted more personal. I wanted more political. I think we got the right mix. But then the dilemma is this. You have, you have issues that last over time. Do you do it issue by issue or chronologically? So there were two separate discussions of gays in the military. What happened in 93 and then how we repealed it years later. So you, you're trying to balance chronology and, uh, and subject matter. But That's why to deal with this, one of the most important parts of the book to me is the three appendices, because you do have this right-wing myth that the reason we had the financial crisis was that the liberals were making banks be too nice to poor people. It is exactly the opposite of what happened, and that's what this, this is all about. This is, for instance, a quote from Alan Greenspan in the appendix talking about how we had to lend money to poor people to buy homes even though there was a risk they wouldn't repay them because we needed to make them conservative. And when people own property, they become more conservative. So we'll take the risk of making these bad loans. And when we try to restrict those bad loans, Greenspan was able to block us. Well, you know, too, uh,
0: there was a... Congressman from my One time home county Orange county Christopher Cox Who was in charge of the SEC He became at the, at the SEC and, and, and didn't do he, any yeah, He, he gave, gave them permission so like six day, six He gave them permission vacation. To regulate themselves Yep. Uh, and no no Blowback for that guy I mean, Well
1: that he got Actually it's interesting If you read the report for instance From Henry Paulson who was Secretary of the Treasury Under Bush he was very critical of him even the, the Bush people kind of uh, were critical of him. Oh, well, that's good to know. <laughs> and actually, an interesting book will be coming out. And, and when Sheila Baer, who was head of the, the Bush appointee, the head of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, was critical of Cox. And there's a book that will be coming out from uh, Ben Bernanke. That will be a very interesting one, who was the head of the Federal Reserve, the Bush appointee. And my guess is he'll also be critical.
0: I'd like you to speak a little bit about the future of the Republican Party. The Tea Party And where the Democrats Fit in between those two Well
1: 2016 is going to be A very important election Uh, Depending on which party wins If the Republicans win There will be no further effort To deal with climate change The right to abortion Will probably disappear Because they'll appoint Supreme Court justices Who who will do that On the other hand If the Democrats win We'll be able to reverse That Citizens United decision Which put all the money Into the system The Republicans will undo Financial reform The Democrats will uh, Protect it And uh uh, Health care, the Republicans will, will cut back on it. We would try to expand it. Now, here's the problem: the Republican Party has been taken over by the most extreme ideological group that's ever taken over a party. But here's the: uh, this is to some extent within the, it's in the hands of the Republican Party. I guess if the Republicans win the presidency, people should understand and and, and hold the Senate. They're going to hold the House, of the district, redistricting. That'll confirm people that the Tea Party is the way to go, and we'll see that kind of extreme conservatism. That's why the next election is very important. I do believe if the Democrats win back the Senate, which is very possible, and win the presidency and make gains in the House, even though we may not be able to take it over, that may finally galvanize the non tea Party Republicans to get off their butts and take their party back, which would be good for the country.
0: I've been speaking with Barney Frank. His new book is Frank, and it lives up to the title. Thank you for joining me, Barney. Thank you. <music>